Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. Congratulations. You have found the internet's finest podcast for music that looks better while staring at geometric shapes. We're going to start this episode, like every episode, off with a little bit of trivia. You know more than I know. You know more than I know. You know more than I'm going to go first today, and I will take the audio quiz. I don't have a name for this one, as always. And what I'm going to do with this quiz is I'm going to play six clips. And I'd like to have you name the artist, the song, and based on the song title, what is the theme of the six clips? Okay, so that's pretty simple. Yeah, very simple. Okay, so here we go. Track one. Go ahead and wreck your health. Hmm. Go play your hand, you big talking man. Make a big fool of yourself. Yeah, Track yeah. Track three. But I married her and took her down to New Orleans. Got a little house in the South French Quarter. Got a job hooking babes, Track four. Salt and pepper squid and Singapore noodles. I could look at your face for oodles and oodles. Track five. I know. Track six. Oh, says Red Molly to James. That's a fine motorbike. I girl could feel special on any such like. Says James to Red Molly, my hat's off to you. Say, not too bad. Pretty simple songs or easy songs. Yeah, I think I've got most of the songs. I'll have to think about the theme, though. Okay. So, and we'll come back at the end of the show, play the clips again, and you'll tell me the answers, I assume? I may tell you the answers. You may tell me the answers if you got them all right, and then I'll tell you the theme. Okay. Because you you probably won't get that. Okay. Well, thanks for the vote of confidence. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe our loyal listeners will do better than me on usual, than usual. Oh, hopefully they'll do well. So, it's my turn. The tables have turned. I am now the trivia master, and I do have a title for my quiz because I love our audience a little bit more new and want to make it a great listening experience for them. Um, the name of my quiz is Sun Ra Habilitation. So <laughs> you have a title because you're really good at that kind of thing, and I'm not. <laughs> I don't. I don't know about that. This is a little quiz. All you got to do is I'm going to read a title. 
you have one job. You have to tell me if it's a Sun Ra album or if it's an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Are you ready? Nope. After image. Deep Space Nine. Correct. Blue Delight. Sun Ra. Yes, yes. The Darkness and the Light. Sun Ra. No, I'm sorry. That's Deep Space Nine. Okay. First Strike. Distant Voices. Sun Ra. Nope, that's a Deep Space Nine, too. Oh, man. Okay, sinking fast. Yep, that was what I was hoping for. A Fireside Chat with Lucifer. Deep Space Nine. Nope, that's a Sun Ra. You need to brush up on your Sun Ra albums and your Deep Space Nine episodes. Okay. This one's you're going to get. In Purgatory Shadow. Deep Space Nine. That is correct. Interstellar Low Ways. Sun Ra. Good. Warming up here. Invisible Shield. Deep Space Nine. Nope. Sun Ra. The Maquis Part 2. Deep Space Nine. The Maquis, Part 1. Deep Space Nine. (laughs) You did not fall for my trap. (laughs) (laughs) Omniverse. Deep Space Nine. No, Sun Ra. Okay. The Other Side of the Sun. Sun Ra. That is, that's a Sun Ra. Outer Space Employment Agency. Deep Space Nine. <laughs> nope, that's a Sun <laughs> Really? <laughs> pretty, pretty great title. It is, yeah. <laughs> uh, other Planes of There. Sun Ra. Yes. Second Sight. Deep Space Nine. Correct. Sound of Joy. Sun Ra. Very good. Deep Starship Down. Deep Space Nine. Supersonic Jazz. Sun Ra. Wow, what a, you got a good run going. Let's finish strong. Tears of Prophets. Deep Space Nine. Correct. Time's Orphan. Sun Ra. That's Deep Space Nine. Oh, man. Okay. Right. I, had a, I had a good run, though. Yeah, you were doing great. You got five in a row. It's like you were possessed. Wrongs Darker Than Death or Night. Deep Space Nine. Very good. And the last one. Picard's Boner. Deep Space Ra. <laughs> nope. That is an unreleased album <laughs> by number one himself, trombonist Jonathan Franks. So, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Was it an outtake? <laughs> uh, I, I think he is an actual tromboner or trombonist however you want to call it. I'm, I'm sure he is. Doesn't he direct a lot of stuff too now? He does. He shows. does. Okay. He's great. You know, you're much more him. of a, Frank, a Francophile than I am, but I think <laughs> I think I know that much. Franco-fanatic. Um, <laughs> all right. You did really good on that. That's that kind, of, kind of hard. How many, do you own any Sun Ra albums? I don't. Um, I have a few on my want list, especially after talking with Chris from Bull Moose when, when we were all talking about Sun Ra. I put a couple on there that he had mentioned. And I want to get that one that's, the Batman and Robin soundtrack from the show. He did a soundtrack for Batman and Robin? Sun Ron, the Blues Project, do Batman and Robin. 
It's going to be nuts. Yeah, yeah. All right. On that note, let's move along, if you're ready, to Turntable Talk. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. When 78s were first sold, they were sold individually, with each side lasting between three and five minutes. The records were relegated to the backs of furniture stores as, as if they were some sort of obscenity. Mostly, the reason for this was the packaging. At that time, records were wrapped in bland brown blank paper like booze or in cardboard sleeves. And sometimes, they'd have the name maybe of the producer of the record or maybe the store selling it. By the 1920s, record albums started appearing on the market. A record album then was basically just a photo album, a book with empty sleeves that you fill with your own records. That's how the name record album came to be when describing an LP. Records were pretty fragile, and using the album meant fewer records would break. Then in the 30s, record companies started selling record albums pre-filled. These would be sold by artist or theme or genre. This was a great idea, but they still had no artwork to differentiate the album, so it was hard to find what you wanted and often kind of confusing. It certainly didn't help sales at all. Columbia, who'd been making records for a while, hired a 23-year-old fresh out of Parsons Design School to handle their advertising and marketing. His name was Alex Steinweiss, and this was 1938. Steinweiss saw the album cover as an opportunity to increase sales. If the cover stood out, people would notice them. For his first album cover, he and a photographer went to the Imperial Theater on West 45th Street. Steinweiss convinced the owner to let them change the marquee for a few minutes on a night when the theater wasn't even open. He swapped out some letters, lit the marquee, and snapped a photo. This photo turned into the first album cover art ever. The album was Smash Song Hits by Rodgers and Hart. By the time Steinweiss retired in the early 70s, he had designed nearly 2,500 album covers, including the first ever LP on 33 and a third RPM. Today is the first of what we hope to be a continuing series focusing on album cover art called Media Coverage. For this episode, we're going to look at some of the coolest jazz record covers of all time and talk about the people who designed them. Many of these people, almost all men, go figure, created styles and thematic, thematic art that's still being copied today. Unfortunately, a lot of these designers have been forgotten by most. Those are the ones we really want to spotlight. Known as the heir to Steinweiss, S. Neil Fujita created some of the most striking album covers through the 50s. Fujita combined photography and avant-garde painting to create bold covers that also captured what he felt the music delivered, which, in turn, saw another revolution because of him. Fujita, like Steinweiss, was hired by Columbia, who asked him to de develop his own in-house design team. This is in 1954. They wanted Fujita's team to compete with Blue Notes covers, which were becoming increasingly more creative, interesting, and innovative. Fujita thought the style Columbia had was well past its time and, you know, boring. Jazz had been changing a lot and was much more powerful, but the album covers hadn't kept up with the changing jazz landscape. Fujita used a lot of abstract expressionist ideas along with some of the best photographers in the business to give Columbia 
a creative jolt. This was an opposition to a lot of what Blue Note was putting out, which was moodier, darker, and featured a lot of shadows and smoke. Two examples of this new style appear on Dave Brubeck's Time Out and Charles Mingus's Mingus Aum albums. Loud, bright colors and abstract shapes give the art a sense of urgency and importance and announce themselves along with the upbeat sounds of the music within. Those two album covers were from his own paintings. Milton Glasser, one of Fujita's art directors, described his style as a synthesis of Bauhaus principles and Japanese sensibility. Fujita designed covers and also commissioned artwork, sometimes using people like Andy Warhol or Ben Sean. For Fujita, jazz called for abstraction, a certain kind of stylization, using modern painters. He wasn't averse to other styles, though, depending on the music, which is important to him. He attended recording sessions and sent his designers to do the same before they started working on the covers. For Round About Midnight by Miles Davis, Fujita used a photo taken by Marvin Koner and washed it with red to create a stunning contrast with its black background. For Art Blakely and the original Jazz Messengers, Fujita created a collage of band members with, within orange and black shapes. When Fujita left Columbia in 1960, he moved on to working in other fields and designed book jackets that are almost as well known as his album covers. He created the design for Truman Capote's In Cold Blood in Mario Puzo's The Godfather. When asked in 2007 what he thought of today's design practices, Fujita said, I am fortunate to have worked in a period before the computer when we had to search for solutions with our own hands. I didn't just design the type for those book jackets. I drew them with quill pens using India inks and dyes. Richard Prophet Jennings is as important to the jazz scene as the myriad of performers with whom he would hang out. He was described as a painter, journalist, filmmaker, hustler, oral historian, and spiritual consigliere to many of the modern jazz giants, including Sonny Rollins, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Cannibal Adderley, Charles Mingus, Max Roach, Dizzy Gillespie, Thelonious Monk, and Freddie Hubbard. It goes on and on. He was given the nickname Prophet by musician King Porter after ceaselessly listing a string of potential cons and tricks. Most important, he was one of the first African Americans who was designing album covers. His journey to jazz legend status was certainly circuitous and fraught with sadness. At a young age, he danced around the streets of Youngstown, Ohio, eventually becoming a dance show promoter. He would also write articles about music for newspaper and magazines, eventually getting known in Detroit for good conversation and great weed called the Chicago Light Green. He ran a concession stand and met a bunch of musicians and started making connections. He was hospitalized for tuberculosis and laid up for a few weeks and started drawing with chalks. When he was out, he bought some oil paint stolen by a junkie and started painting regularly. He would get exhibits in the U.S. and in Europe. Thelonious Monk noticed him at an exhibit which started his career in designing album covers. He ended up marrying a Swedish airline hostess who would die in a plane crash, leaving Jennings with a young daughter. Eventually... He ended up working in comedy alongside Richard Pryor and Red Fox. Drawing inspiration from the spirit of the Harlem Renaissance, Jennings painted what he was passionate about, focusing on the mood and spirit of the music rather than a marketable image. He has several famous covers including Thelonious Monk with John Coltrane, Max Roach's It's Time, and Eric Dolphy's Out There, which is a Dolly-esque dream sequence with a flying cello ship and a giant metronome. Prophet often worked with Impulse art director Robert Flynn, who was also responsible for a variety of famous covers. 
Jennings was the true embodiment of the jazz scene and the lifestyle, and highly respected for his contributions. Both Eric Dolphy and Freddie Hubbard dedicated compositions to profit. Francis Wolfe was one of Blue Note's owners, as well as being their primary photographer. He was behind a lot of the most memorable covers at Blue Note, but it's Esmond Edwards who was using similar techniques at Prestige that we're going to talk about next. Edwards was a brilliant photographer and created a lot of Prestige's most iconic album art. Edwards started as a musician and photographer and happened to go into Prestige one day in 1957 to watch his friend record some tracks. He snapped a few photos and when he brought them back to show the session's producers, the photos were purchased and Edwards was hired. Edwards became more than a photographer. He also became a record producer, composer, and arranger. In an interview, he recalled, I got to sign and work with exciting new artists like Eric Dolphy and Oliver Nelson, as well as old favorites like Buck Clayton and Coleman Hawkins. I was supervising the recordings, shooting pictures, during the rundowns of playbacks, and then I would hurry home to process the film and print design and design the LP cover. By 1967, Edwards was the head of Verve Records, and by 1970, he was the vice president of A&R for Chess Records. Much like the Roundabout Midnight cover mentioned earlier, Edwards often used dark, intense photos and flooded them with a single color on top of a black background. But he wasn't only working in that single style. For the Relaxing with Miles Davis album, he still had only two main colors, but the shapes are geometric, more like a Cubist painting. The album he's most famous for are John Coltrane's Soul Train, Lush Life and Training In, and the Coltrane Prestige album with no other words on the cover. The latter shows a very serious, seated John Coltrane behind a table with his saxophone laying in front of him. Others you've probably seen are Steaming and Working with Miles Davis, Honey Dripper by Brother Jack McDuff, Cooking Sherry by Willis Jackson, and Curtis Fuller's album New Trombone. Don Schlitten was mostly known as a record producer. But while vice president at Prestige Records, he would take total control of albums, including liner note writer, art director, and photographer. His cover designs often conveyed a sense of humor, taking some of the gas out of the seriousness a lot of jazz fans carried around with them. Some of his notable covers include Bobby Timmons' Soul Food, which on the cover has kind of a cartoonish can of what looks like cat food with Bobby Timmons' picture on it. The Lucky Thompson Quartet album, Lucky Strikes, which, no surprise, is designed to look like a pack of cigarettes. Freddie McCoy's Spider-Man from 1966. This album is actually just a picture of a Steve Ditko illustration of Spider-Man. It's pretty great, actually, and it's really hard to find. I've only ever seen one of these out in the wild at any record store, and the, the cover was absolutely beat. The wrong record was inside, and I think they still wanted 20 bucks for it because it's so hard to find. Was he playing Spider-Man songs, or or was it just called Spider-Man? No part of the music on there has anything to do with Spider-Man at all. He just likes Spider-Man a lot, so I'm going to make a jazz record. I don't think Freddie McCoy had any relationship to Spider-Man. I think Don Schlitten just maybe just put it on there. I don't know. <laughs> Don Schlitten was, seems like kind of a weird guy. The kids will eat this up. <laughs> Another one of his was Brother Jack McDuff, his album Hot Barbecue. And what that one is, it's just a picture of Jack McDuff just stuffing his face with a full slab of ribs, which I think is is kind of funny. Yeah, I don't need a a jazz album to see that. I live in the South. I can go to any corner. There's somebody stuffing their face with ribs. (laughs) So the, the cleverness of his albums may not really 
translated through time very well, but they're still kind of fun, very memorable. But perhaps Schlitten's finest artistic achievement was his mustache. Trust me, it'll be it'll be all over our social media. It is truly facial hair free jazz. It is magnificent. Atlantic Records had a pair of fine art directors during the height of their jazz era. Marvin Israel was art director for Seventeen and Harper's Bazaar magazines, working with Henri Cartier-Bresson, Diane Arbus, Andy Warhol, and Lee Friedlander, who took an amazing amount of classic jazz cover photos. He eventually would act as a freelancer for Atlantic, creating some fascinating and fetching cover designs. It would be Israel who would be responsible for some of their most notable albums, including Ornette Coleman's Shape of Jazz to Come, Mingus's The Clown, Coltrane's Giant Steps, and Coltrane Sound, the Max Roach Trio featuring the legendary Hassan, which might be my favorite jazz record. I'm going to talk about that in a little later. And Ray Charles' What I Say. Another favorite cover by done by Marvin Israel is Do It Now with organist brother Jack McDuff, uh, who's not eating ribs in this one, but is rather an abstract caricature, and it's surrounded by these great like pink and yellow boxes. It's a great cover. Loring Udemy was Israel's contemporary, whose distinctive designs drew inspiration from all over, including surrealism, collage, African paintings, cartoons, and postmodernism. Some of his most famous covers include Ornette Coleman's This Is Our Music, Coleman's Free Jazz, which had another work uh, by Jackson Pollock on it, the avant-garde John Coltrane and Don Cherry, Randy Weston's African Cookbook, and Charles Mingus's Oh Yeah. He's also responsible for some fantastic blues, R&B, soul, and rock covers. He did a lot with stacks. Some of the other things you might know him for is Albert King's Born Under a Bad Sign, Archie Bell and the Drells Tighten Up, Otis Redding's The Soul Album, and Iron Butterflies in Agata DeVita. Thought-provoking, hyper-focused graphics in vibrant colors are the trademark of album covers designed by Pete Turner. He originally worked with Creed Taylor at CTI Records, truly revolutionizing the jazz album cover from stylized artistic photos to representational and evocative graphic designs, including shadows, wildlife, geometric shapes, and images that often were in sharp contrast to the album title. As a young photographer, Turner sought out Taylor after recognizing his willingness to try different approaches with album art. Taylor used one of Turner's photos of a streetlight backed by the Empire State Building for the album Sound of New York, and the partnership blossomed. Purposefully moving away from headshots, the duo pushed for more gatefold artwork that would fold out and cover a tabletop. In 1967, Bossa Nova artist Antonio Carlos Jobim released Wave with a striking cover of a silhouette of a giraffe against a green horizon. It was supposed to be a red background, but there was accidentally a plate switch, Turner was responsible for the ostriches on Milt Jackson's Sunflower, the ashtray in A Day in the Life of West Montgomery, and the toe licking on Stanley Turrentine's Sugar, which <laughs> kind of reminds me of an Ohio Players album cover. His art sort of looks like sensual, druggy, 70s-era Sesame Street short clips, if that makes sense. He also created the jazz mainstay The Blues and the Abstract Truth by Oliver Nelson, and just have... I have to say, I know we're probably going to talk about this a little bit later. I think the CTI albums, to me, are the are probably the weakest of the ones that we're talking about. I can he's he's an important guy, but 
these are ones I, I'm not a huge fan of. I don't know. You mean like the music or the covers or both? The covers. Well, I like Antonio Carlos Jobim because I like grotto music, but the covers themselves, I, I'm not really a, I'm not really much of a fan of those. Yeah, I'm not. I, I'm not either. But I can see why they were why they stood out and what made them different and important. Even with all that toe looking, I thought that was kind of your thing. I'm not Robert Christow. <laughs> I don't know if anybody's going to get that reference, but that is a deep cut. That's a Lou Reed reference from his Take No Prisoners album. If you can explain that joke, email us and we'll we'll get you a prize. (laughs) (laughs) Weirdly, both you and I knew exactly what you were talking about. (laughs) But I agree. They just don't seem to push the envelope as much as some of the other covers. I like the idea of the gatefold, but yeah, that's... Otherwise, I I don't know if that giraffe on wave is really all that impressive to me. I don't know. People love it. People talk about it all the time. It's a horse with a long neck. I mean, come on. Bill Claxton was known for his ability to draw out jazz musicians from the dark and smoky confines of the East Coast toward bright and sunny California imagery. Gaining notoriety in the early 60s for his intimate portraits of Chet Baker, as well as his fashion pictures, which included notorious topless swimsuit photos of his wife Peggy Moffat, Claxton went on to shoot Charlie Parker, Doozy Gillespie, Mel Torme, Duke Ellington, Thelonious Monk, and Stan Getz, with many using his photos for their LP covers. His shots were fun and often had some West Coast aspects. Outdoor settings featuring sun, sea, and they would buck the typical jazz photography cliches of harsh flashlights, sweat, and strong contrast. Claxton said photography is jazz for the eyes. It's the tool that you would like to be able to ignore, but you have to have it to convey your thoughts and whatever you want to express through it. He also would work with Steve McQueen, Sinatra, and Dylan. Perhaps his most recognizable cover is Sonny Rollins' 1957 Way Out West, featuring the saxophonist in the Mojave Desert with a Stetson and a gun belt. Doesn't that one remind you of Bo Diddley as a gunslinger? Yes, yes. Be nice to have those two like framed and kind of next to each other on a wall. I think they would look really good together. Who do you think would win Bo Diddley's guitar or Sonny Rollins' saxophonist if there was like a shootout at the OK Corral? If Sonny Rollins could get Bo's glasses off, he could get him because he's like Mr. Magoo. (laughs) Next up is Paul Bacon, who started out as an art director at Blue Note, but made his name at Riverside, where he and photographer Paul Weller, not the jam master, churned out memorable covers, including Everyone Digs Bill Evans, which sports rousing endorsements from other jazz musicians, Monk's Music with Thelonious hunkered down in a little red wagon looking over sheet music, Monk's Mysterioso album, which has a very Dolly-esque surrealist cover, and Halloween Mainstay Blues for Dracula by Philly Joe Jones, and that's one that goes on my wall every October. Bacon also designed iconic covers for the novels Catch-22, Slaughterhouse-5, Zen, and the Art of Motorcycle Repair, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Joe, I was going to ask you, what's your favorite Bacon-wrapped cover? (laughs) Is there any bacon-colored vinyl, like for, or can you infuse vinyl with bacon? I know you can with dead people now, but can you, like, you can put dead people in albums. Can you put bacon in there too, like at the same time? <laughs> if you sizzle the bacon all the way down to ash, you could probably sprinkle it in. It'd be nice to smell your record. Yeah, and then you could have raccoons joining you all night while you're listening to records. I think record store day that would be a, would be a hot seller. 
It'd just be sizzling. It would be sizzling. Very good. Need a spatula to turn the record over. 20, <laughs> 20 minutes of sizzling. <laughs> Clearly this head cold is a lot worse than I thought it was. Reed Miles, the single most important graphic designer in the history of jazz records. For all the covers we all recognize and all the coffee table books featuring his record covers, very few people even know Reed Miles' name. Miles created over 500 album covers for Blue Note Records, and you've probably seen most of them on display somewhere. Maybe the walls of a record store, maybe in a book, or even in an art gallery. His covers have become part of the landscape of not only jazz albums, but all album covers. His style is still being copied today. Miles studied art in Los Angeles, but he really didn't have any interest in art at the time. He just happened to be dating a woman who was enrolled, and so he followed along. When the relationship fizzled out, Miles had truly begun to love what he was learning and had developed a stunning visual style that was all his own. He graduated, and he moved to New York and began working Esquire magazine before being hired by Blue Note in 1955. Blue Note had only recently made the switch to 12-inch LPs, and Francis Wolfe hired him to be in charge of designing those album covers. It was still early in the days of album cover art, which meant there weren't any rules yet in place. This was all new for everyone, and it allowed him to have free reign to develop styles that were not yet seen anywhere. Miles was a master of photography, text, and empty space. He created a personality for Blue Note, defining how the label was branded. His covers were dynamic, and he always seemed to know when to add more and when to leave something alone. Like with his design of John Coltrane's Blue Train. Simple, restrained, elegant, but also progressive. Reed Miles never allowed himself to settle into any one style, always moving forward in only the most brilliant ways. Miles, more than any other designer mentioned today, captured the sound and swagger of the music within and turned it into an image. He became one part of what defined jazz. Each of his covers has a clear focal point, gaining immediate attention. He often played around with typography, juxtaposing large elements with small elements. Like Esmond Edwards, many of Miles' covers were also monochromatic. Photos flooded with greens, blues, reds, leaving the black background, giving the musician a sense of grandeur and integrity. There was no method, all of his covers were their own, and each of them appears new and fresh every time you look at them, often like the music sounds that's found within. In an article published by Retinart, Alex Charchar wrote about Reed Miles' work. They scream modernism in a way that few can compete against, often treating the typography as visual elements that can be broken apart, stacked upon one another in a playful way, blown up or shrunk down, and brought together with the photography in a way that seems gravitational. The layouts are often evasively perfect, as they look as if to lay any of them out even slightly differently would be to lay them out wrong. Reed Miles also gave Andy Warhol's career a boost, commissioning him to design some album covers when he had little work and less money. All of these designed by an artist who didn't even like jazz. Miles used the descriptions of the sessions relayed to him by producer Alfred Lyon to create his artwork. He could easily have his own turntable talk. His stuff is just so impressive. His use of pictures, like, they talk about shrinking now, but, like, he took the, the picture of the artist and he made it almost secondary to the font or to the shapes. And it, mm -hmm. Very interesting how he would always, not always, but often have a picture of the artist, but it would be so tiny that it would not be the thing that catches your eye, but kind of wormed its way into your psyche after looking at the 
brilliant contrast of the words or the pictures or... Or just the exclamation points, like that, just punctuation. Right. Like that, what was that, the Jackie McLean, it's time, I it's think. It's time, and it's got all the exclamation point. yeah. Yep. It's one of my favorites. And I think he would crop the photos that Francis Wolfe took, which would really irritate Francis Wolfe. He was so mad about that. But overall, those pictures, those album covers are just so much better because of that, just because of how they were put together. And to think of the process of to, you you know, you've got 50, 100 pictures to choose. You not only have to choose the picture, but you have to choose the right part of the picture you're going to use within the right context and then add the style or... You know, maybe you put the picture into the style that you already had. I, I mean, it's just, I mean, it truly is an art to to make look that good. And just the sheer amount of records they were doing mm-hmm. and to make them all have a similar style but not be boring, right. like utilitarian, like library music. It's just not just him, but all these guys. It's just really impressive what they were able to do. And to do it without like having the reference uh, point of a computer screen to kind of move things around and switch them. You know, going back and forth between different different views and different windows, they they had to know what they were gonna gonna do ahead of time. Yeah, and I, and I think there's so many album covers now are just. I mean, you're going back, and there just wasn't there wasn't these things to fall back on. There wasn't these cliches or these iconic images to fall back on. You had to make them. You know, you had to be them. So. Yeah, exactly. That's a that's a really good point, actually. Yeah, a lot of the album covers today are doing exactly that. They're looking back in the past at these album covers and and referencing referencing them in some way or using some aspect of them, and they couldn't do that. Well, and I think especially jazz compared to like if you think about how boring you know country and western covers often were, very studio photo of the artist, you know, very plain, or or even like rock rock photos of the time. The, the level of depth and artwork for these was just, uh, they were in a different plane, I think. Yeah, and it was the late 60s and early 70s when rock albums started just making so much money that record labels would put a lot of money into the design. And that's what sort of took away a lot of the jazz artists, the graphic designers that were working there. They were getting paid to go move over to rock. And a lot of the designers in jazz just retired. Reed Miles retired. A lot of them did. We mentioned Fujito left. So just the covers themselves changed a lot. I know Blue Note, I think, sold to Liberty in 67. And that just kind of, you can see that there's a big difference from before and after that. There were still some really great ones, but it wasn't that same Blue Note identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, once you've established that, it'd be hard to, to maintain that, you know? Like, how do you go into that job? You follow a guy who created an identity for the most important jazz record label, and now you're coming in there, and how do you how do you do anything? Like, so difficult, I would imagine. Well, and, you know, they were probably looking for, you know, like you said, Rock was starting to outsell jazz records, and they were probably looking for somebody who was decent at copying more rock styles. And who would work for less money because jazz was, wasn't making much money at that yeah. point. yeah. Now a lot, all the guys that we covered, are really important, but they're and really important in the kind of the golden era of jazz in the fifties and sixties. There are tons that we just don't have time to cover at all. We'll be coming back again in another episode to talk about other integral album cover artists from other genres too. And as far as the album art itself, it's hard when you're on a podcast to talk about album art, but. It's really part of the experience of listening to records. One of the most wonderful things about records, to me at least, is 
regardless of whether you prefer the sound of one medium over another, the experience that you can have with a record because of the album art and you know the interaction you have with the record, you have to flip it over, you have to set the needle down, and with the liner notes and everything, pulling the record out, it all just complements itself and you can really just kind of sit back and, and do a lot more with that than I think you can get from, from anything else. Other forms that you're getting, MP3, CDs, whatever they may be, they all have pros and cons, but it's just a different type of thing with the record. It's one of the things that I that I personally just really cherish about the time spent with a record. I think like when you buy a record, it is like buying like a little piece of art. I mean, that is, it's very cliche and, and kind of a generalization, but like it's the first thing that grabs you, you know, is, is mm-hmm. what you're looking at. And there's something that, 12 inch cover or 11 and a half inches, whatever it is, how important it is that you have this representation and like what it could entail inside. It's just so important. And I think especially now where we do have Spotify and MP3s, you just, you just lose that. It's certainly one thing, like you said, it's part of the experience that you cannot just separate from the music. Going out and actually flipping through records, you're, I think you're more likely to get caught up in a, in an album cover and maybe buy it um, because it's so much bigger and just jumps out at you than you would if you're flipping through CDs or it's it would be impossible just going through MP3s just because they're it's too easy to just keep going through them so fast that you're not going to really even notice that I don't think well and just the the judgment calls you make like if you're going through a dollar bin and you're looking through covers and yeah you're going to miss a lot there's some great covers on horrible albums. But sometimes, like, you can kind of just say, wow, this this is too interesting to not get. Um, <laughs> can you think of any albums you bought just for the cover whether, sure. and that you ended up liking? Uh, well, just that, last week I played on the Velvet Underground show, I played the Elliot Murphy. I found, I basically picked that out because I thought, wow, that cover looks like it could be like a cool glam record or something like that. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I remember you saying that. And it wasn't, but I I totally stopped and looked at that and pulled it out. And then I saw it was 73 and I thought, you know, it looks like something I would would like. I'm trying to think of some other, I know uh, I pulled an album by Steve Davis. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. No. Called Mm -hmm. Music. And it turns out, and the cover is really cool. It's kind of like fusion rock jazz stuff, but it turns out it was turned out to be kind of a valuable record that I don't listen to a ton, but I love the cover. I'll have to post a picture of it because I think the cover is really cool, but I'm trying to think of some other examples. Tons, like that's how you shop in dollar bins, really. When you're not looking and you don't know anything specific about it, all you have is the cover. Or like there's little tricks like... When I was looking through a lot of like the the Christian psychedelic stuff, there's a ton of just horrible Christian records and silly covers. But if you can find one that has guitars on it or has different type people on the cover, you know, you can kind of pick out which out of all the hundreds you see, which two or three might be worth listening to based on what you see on the cover. And yeah, yeah, no, it's it's great just looking through those looking through those covers is always so much fun. I probably told this, maybe even on the podcast, the story, but like how I kind of decided I was going to switch over from CDs to records. Even though I was working at a CD store, I went to a different CD store and I was going to buy Bonnie Prince Billy's uh, I See a Darkness. And I got there and I happened to look through the records and I, I saw that and it was just 
this beautiful black album, you know, with that picture of the skull. Mm -hmm. And like, I held that and I had the CD in my hand at that point. And I was like, you know what? I would rather have this, you know, I haven't really looked back since then. I don't, and I would say, you know, the music would have been the same. I already knew what I wanted, but just having that record cover really changed me on what the experience wanted to be. I wanted to hold it. I wanted to have that part of it. So anyways, totally veered off track, but I think anybody listening to the show would agree that it's a huge part of the experience. And those guys who gave a visual picture of these records did a great benefit to the music. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the albums that we talked about are really expensive, really hard to find, but many of them have been reissued, especially a lot of the Blue Notes, so they're fairly inexpensive, so you can get a copy of them pretty cheap, usually like 10 to 15 bucks for some of those Blue Note reissues, and you can hang the record up. There are nice frames for them. I have a few of those. I, I definitely have one in our hallway. I have a few more frames that I, that I don't have up, but it's fun to hang these up and then just switch them out every once in a while, I think, so you can go actually listen to the album. But with the Blue Note ones, it's kind of cool to listen to them at this, uh, as often as possible. I kind of like the, to think about your house as like you have a uh, seasonal record that you hang up. You have your, I do. <laughs> your Christmas record, your Halloween record. Yep. Yep, well, I've got the Philly Joe Jones for Halloween, Christmas Changes. That's a different one every every Christmas. I think I've got a, a few different Christmas ones. I think this year it was uh, the soundtrack to The Grinch that the kid's aunt Lee got them, so I put that up. And <laughs> usually it's like an Elvis Christmas album or something. And then Valentine's Day is the Mary Wells album. And just kind of go through and, and switch things around as often as possible. What do you put for the 4th of July? I don't know if I've done a 4th of July one Huh, I'll have to think about that. It's not very patriotic. Throw some Woody Guthrie up there for Labor Day. Yep, yep, that's a good one. What would you put up for, for the 4th of July? Do you have something that you would think you think would be good? That Sly and the Family Stone, there's a riot going on with that kind of weird-looking American flag thing. would be kind of, I don't know, that's the first one I could think of off the top of my head. Okay, yeah, that's a good one. One other thing that, uh, that kind of astounds me, especially about the guys that worked for, for the labels is how they would use, you know, those individual elements, but still have kind of a uniform look. Like, that just blows my mind. Like, Reed Miles is the easiest one to kind of identify with, where the typography and the shapes and the photography and the color were all vastly different. You know, there wasn't, like, it was not boilerplate at, all, at any by any stretch of the imagination, but you can tell a blue note, you know, it's not hard to tell one. And I think that's something that's just kind of been lost. You know, I don't, can't think of a record label now that has maybe third man that has that same sort of, where you could tell what it is. All the albums are different, but the style is so recognizable. Can you think of anything like that? I think at this point, the artists are actually have, they have a lot more control over what the album cover looks like oh yeah true true than record label would which is i think a much better thing overall i'd rather have the artist pick oh, yeah. out what's going to represent themselves in the music but at this time for what they were doing i thought it worked out perfectly i don't know when that would have changed exactly but probably probably when rock really started taking over and and people would hire out andy warhol to do album covers instead of having a label des decide what's what the album cover is going to be it seems like late 60s, because even like the early Beatles records kind of have a look 
Like, a, you know, you could maybe think that maybe one person designed most of those. Like Capital just decided this is what we're going to put out there? Yes. Yeah. You know, or, you know, they were so worried about making sure their artists were front and center. We want these these people to be able to see sort of like rock, early rock. You know, Elvis needs to be very visible, very clear. It's so much easier to market them if everybody knows what they look like. Right, right. And jazz was just not there, you know. And I just, I think probably by the time, the more um, using those abstract concepts from jazz, by the time rock got there and they would put whatever they wanted on there, maybe the band, maybe not. But it just changed quite a bit. Yeah, you know, yeah. I don't think it's come back. I don't think it's ever been the same. No, it's just it's just very different. I think you could do that instead of doing it with labels. You could probably do it with bands now, where you can say these this band who's released you know five to ten albums. You can tell that it's their album or that that is coming from them. So it's I think that is sort of shifted in that way, where they will have the same maybe they'll have the same designer or the same person coming up with the ideas in the band or people in the band, where their series of albums will be. Uh, more of a representation of the band rather than the record label. Okay, yeah, I could definitely see that for sure. Trying to think of a band that does that. I'm just sort of, in my head it makes sense, but I can't actually think. I can think of a terrible example. Who? Weezer. But, but, you know, they do those different colored records where they have the different. Bell and Sebastian did it. Bell and Sebastian would be a much cooler version. Yeah, Weezer, they do a good job of branding themselves. They just don't do a very good job of making music. <laughs> Are there other ones like that? White Stripes did that pretty successfully, I would say. Yeah, they did a really good job. So that's another Jack White, is, it seems, just very smart all around with everything he's doing, I think. it's But it's so different because a band puts out, what, a record, maybe one every two years, three years. And these jazz guys, these these record labels are putting out albums and albums and albums. Yep. Like, it's just, if the artist was in control of all those, it just might be too much. It's interesting how it's totally changed. All right. Well, are you ready to talk about some songs? Let's do it. I'm going to play the first song today, and this song is called 3-4 verse 6-8-4-4 Ways, and it's by the Max Roach Trio.
That was 3-4 versus six eight four four Ways by the Max Roach Trio on the 1964 Atlantic record Max Roach Trio featuring the, featuring the legendary Hassan, uh, which I mentioned earlier in the podcast because it has a great uh, Marvin Israel tricolor cover. Uh, pretty cool. Anyways, Hassan Ibn Ali was a piano player from Philadelphia who's basically one of the greatest lost heroes of jazz. Uh, his influence across the region was huge. He would influence most of the jazz players in the area, including uh, John Coltrane. That sheets sound approach is often attributed to uh, Ibn Ali. But for all his greatness and influence, he only ever recorded one session, and that was the session where the song came off of. There was about seven tracks that he composed, and he got together with Max Roach, uh, the drummer, and the bass player Art Davis. And Max Roach had pretty considerable clout with Atlantic, and he used it, probably all of it, to get to the session, and it turned out to be some great, great music. Uh, Ibn Ali was a very eccentric guy and very unstable, even by jazz standards, which is saying something. Um, <laughs> when he was playing in Philadelphia, he would have trouble getting people to play with him, not because just because he was unstable, that was part of it, but also he was so advanced that other players just weren't sure they wanted to be on stage with him because he was just doing crazy things. His styles virtuosic and melodic at the same time and it can be kind of quirky but it's also intense so this record across the board is amazing but this is the opening song i think it's especially terrific it has been reissued but i do have a reissue not an original i definitely think it's um worth a listen i am not the jazz guy that joe is i i have some i i know a little bit of about jazz and and i love it and appreciate it i've just always been scared to kind of go full in because i kind of have a i can't have an obsessive personality and i could see myself just going crazy about jazz so i kind of limit myself to my favorite records that i've heard and know and and this is definitely one of them but i don't think it's as well known as some of the other jazz records 
around, but I think it's definitely worth knowing, if not just for the crazy story about uh, Hassan Ibn Ali, who is this giant, but only recorded once. I had not heard this album, so I was glad that you, when you mentioned it to me, uh, it's really good. It's a great album. For my first song tonight, I'm going to play a track by Ahmed Abdul Malik from his album Spellbound, and the song is called Song of Delilah. Thank you. 
All right, that was Ahmed Abdul Malik from his album Spellbound, which was released in 1964 on Status Records. Abdul Malik was, at first, he started off as a bassist in groups helmed by Art Blakey and Thelonious Monk, but he eventually kind of distinguished himself by playing the oud, which is a Middle Eastern instrument. And he sort of was the main person to introduce that sound into jazz, which you should have heard from that song. Um, there's a, an oud, basically an oud solo in it, which is really good. And he did that a lot. This uh, album, Spellbound, which was his sixth and final album, doesn't have as much as some of his other ones, but it's really a great sound. It, it just blends so well. And this is a really nice, mellow album. And Abdul Malik started playing that um, just kind of when he would play with Johnny Griffith's group. And then in 1961, he played the oud with John Coltrane. And the oud is kind of like a lute. It has 11 or 13 strings, depending on which kind it is. It's played with a pick like a guitar. It's just got this very unique sound. You, you know it right when you hear it. Abdul Malik recorded six albums again. This was his final one. And he recorded them for RCA, Prestige, and Status. So I don't have a whole lot on Abdul Malik. But if you do um, ever want to just kind of go through Spotify and listen to some of his stuff, he's got a really interesting, unique sound. And again, it's because of that instrument that he brings in. And it's, it's worth hearing. All right, my next track is by Albert Eiler. And it's, the song is called Heart Love. <laughs>
All right, that was Albert Eiler with a song called Heart Love from his 1968 album New Grass on Impulse Records. Albert Eiler is another one like Reed Miles who we could do at least one whole show on, and it still wouldn't be enough. He was a giant of free jazz, one of the most important free jazz guys ever. He learned to play saxophone when he was really young, and his dad, he and his dad would play in churches as a duo, saxophone duo. In high school, he toured with Little Walter playing R&B, so he'd go on tour for that. Eventually, he joined, in 1956, he joined the Army and he was stationed in France where he played with local musicians there. So he was learning all these different styles. Um, he went to Sweden in 62, where he lived for a while, and he led a jazz band there with local musicians as well. So he's getting all these different influences from all over. And it was there that Cecil Taylor, another free jazz guy, came through, and they met, and they ended up playing together a little bit. And then Eiler moved back to the States, and he played more with Cecil Taylor, and he played with Ornette Coleman, and then he formed his own group. And one of the one of the guys in that group was Don Cherry. They played around for a while, and then Don Cherry moved to Europe from the States. And Eiler replaced him with his brother Donald. And Donald, who didn't quite have the chops of Don Cherry, because Donald wasn't able to do the same things. They changed their sound around quite a bit. And so now they had this like free jazz sort of warbling, which is very interesting. But it, now it also had this like weird New Orleans jazz band sound mixed into it, described perfectly as a Salvation Army band on LSD. <laughs> it's an incredibly interesting sound, and it's really wonderful. The critics at the time had no idea what to do with this music. Nobody had ever heard anything like it. They didn't know if he was being serious, if he was joking. It was so far removed from anything anybody else had created at all. Now, John Coltrane loved it, and he became a huge fan, and he talked Impulse into signing Eiler. And so in 1967, Impulse did that, and Eiler joined, joined that record label. And he put out three records on Impulse. The first one was a live, uh, was a live album. It's a really good at capturing Eiler doing what he did, which was free jazz. He was all over the place. After that first album, I think that was around the time that Coltrane died. And Eiler was one of only two people who were asked to play at the funeral. The other one was Ornette Coleman. After that, Eiler released two more albums on Impulse. The first one was... A series of much shorter songs that were more commercially viable, I think, is what Impulse wanted. And then he released Newgrass in 1968, which was this one, which had backup singers, had horns. It, it had all kinds of a soul, gospel, R&B sound. It was really weird. Critics hated it. His fans hated it, calling him a sellout. Fans of music in general were just going to continue to ignore him anyway, so he basically just ostracized himself from the only people that were listening to him at all. Everybody everybody seemed to just blast it. I think it's a wonderful album, and I think by now it seems to be gaining steam again as something wonderful. And Eiler kind of predicted that on his own. He was pretty confident in what he was doing. He often said that in the future his music would finally be appreciated and people would see what he was what he was trying to accomplish with it. With those two albums on Impulse, because he had changed his sound, whether it was at the behest of, of Impulse or not, to try to, to ramp up some sales because he couldn't sell records, he had to get rid of his brother Donald because Donald couldn't play this style of music. And Donald, after this, 
had a nervous breakdown, like almost right when he was fired. And Eiler kind of blamed himself forever for that. And by forever, I only mean about two years. Eiler went and did a tour in Europe. And then when he came back in 1970, Impulse canceled his contract. So he's got a canceled contract. His records aren't selling. And his brothers had a nervous breakdown. He just hasn't really recovered. Eiler kills himself. Um, and his body was found floating in the East River. And it's just a horribly sad story. There's a documentary about him called My Name is Albert Eiler. And it's not streaming anywhere that I can find. But if you ever see it, you should watch it. It's by the same uh, Swedish director that did the Lee Morgan documentary that is on Netflix right now. So Albert Eiler is just an incredibly interesting guy. I'm not a huge free jazz fan in really any way at all. I don't care much for the John Coltrane free jazz. I'd much rather listen to his early stuff. But I do really like Albert Eiler, and Charles Gale is another one that I really like, a much more contemporary, or, well, it was contemporary when I was younger. Anyway, <laughs> um, I like Albert Eiler stuff a lot. I think he's really interesting, and in a way that I've never heard anybody else do anything like that. He's, he's one of those names that you hear, like, in the same breath as Captain Beefheart, or somebody who is just, for the style, just, or for their genre they were just so out there and so innovative and so beyond what was the norm you know so um all right with the last song i'm going to play something that is uh decidedly not free jazz it is chicago dam by bobby humphrey Thank you. 
right. Uh, that was Chicago Dam by Bobby Humphrey. It's a Blue Note record, uh, 1973 album called Blacks and Blues. Jazz flutist Bobby Humphrey was the first female instrumentalist on Blue Note. And in 73, she released this amazing jazz funk record that is fun and airy and has amazing drum beats and breaks and has that kind of flighty flute of hers sprinkled throughout. It's an easygoing album, and it has definitely been mined over for samples. I want to say maybe the Diggable Planets use some of this record. Um, anyways, she's kind of got an interesting story. She she is an amazing talent, and she got the attention of Dizzy Gillespie and Duke Ellington when she was a music student just playing around in Texas, and they both told her, you need to come to New York City. They didn't give her any way to help her to get to New York City. She still had to do everything herself. But she she took their advice and she moved to New York City without any prospects and just happened to, to play around. And she would score big at an amateur night at the Apollo and she would just drop off unsolicited demo tapes to various jazz labels. Um, and eventually one got into the hands of a producer at Blue Note who loved it and called her up that same day and said, we want to give you a record deal. And she was just barely 20 at that point. So young, young kid. So she released a couple albums. This, I think, was her third album. And the production for it was done by the Mazel Brothers, who had been kind of it producers in the jazz world of the early 70s. They'd worked a lot with Donald Byrd, and they are the ones who kind of sang the backup vocals on that song. Uh, Bobby Humphrey does sing a little bit on that album, and she's got a really interesting voice. I think I like the song overall better. Uh, but the Mizell Brothers just kind of give it a loose and slinky feel. It's just a... It's just a f- fun record and I thought it'd be something a little different from the other songs that we had played. The album cover is one of those covers that we kind of talked about how Blue Note lost a step with its cover game in the 70s. It is not terribly interesting. It's just a kind of a candid photo of her, a little bit of writing on it. So of course we'll we'll put a picture of this and we probably should have mentioned this earlier, but we'll put lots of pictures on our website and we'll, we'll uh, put some on over Facebook and some of all, a lot of these records that we're talking about, we we're going to make sure if you want to see them, it will be easy for you on our website. With that said, let's finish up that trivia. Oh yeah. I got to go back to trivia. Here's what we're going to do again. I'm going to play six clips again. I want you to name the, the song, the okay. artist. And then after that, after all six, tell me what, the theme that links these songs together would be. And that theme is based on the song title. Okay. So for those of you playing at home, pay attention to the title of the track. Don't worry about who's doing it. Okay. All right. Here we go. Track one. Go ahead and wreck your health. Hmm. Go play your hand, you big talking man. Make a big fool of yourself. Yeah, yeah. Track two. Neck my head it around with screams and groans for the night I spent amongst her bones. Then I passed beside the mission house with that mad old buzz of the reverend shrieked and flapped. Track three. But I married her and took her down to New Orleans. Got a little house in the South French Quarter. Got a job hooking babes 
Track four. Salt and pepper squid and Singapore noodles. I could look at your face for oodles and oodles. Track five. I know you feel disoriented tonight. Track six. Horses, red molly to James. That's a fine motorbike. A girl could feel special on any such like. Says James to Red Molly, my hat's off to you. Okay. What right. do you got? I think I got most of the songs. The first song is Jackson by Lee Hazelwood and Nancy Sinatra. Yep. The second song is Papa Won't Leave You, Henry by Nick Cave. Yes. A lullaby, really. It is a lullaby. Disturbing, horrible lullaby. As is Cedartown, Georgia. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think this is the theme, but... It's kind of the theme of all songs I play in some way. (laughs) It is. It is. Okay, Cedartown, Georgia is by Waylon Jennings. I've been to Cedartown, Georgia. There's not a monument to Waylon Jennings or the song, which kind of makes sense given the content. Uh, the The fourth song... I don't know the name of the song. It's Luna, I'm pretty sure, but I don't I don't know the name of the song. It is. It's Luna and the song is Renee is crying and it has one of those great Dean Wareham opening couplets that I think only he and Shane McGowan can write opening couplets that are almost always brilliant. Yep. They um they suck you right in. Yep. What was the name of the song? Renee is crying. Okay. The next one is O Paul by I think it was the Palace Brothers at that point. Is that right? It is. Yep. Okay. All right. And the last song is, let me see if I can get this right. 1952 Vincent Black Lightning. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. By Richard Thompson. I always forget if it's Vincent Black Lightning 1952 because he says it weird in the song. Nope. It's uh, 1952 first. You had it. You nailed it with the first one. Okay, good, good, good. Okay. So I'm guessing... It's more than just first names in the name of the song. It is. So yeah, let's, for the people at home, it's going to be track one is, the name of the song is Jackson. Track two is Papa Won't Leave You, Henry. Track three is Cedartown, Georgia. Track four is Renee is Crying. Track five is Oh Paul. And track six is 1952, Vincent Black Lightning. And the theme is not just that they are first names in the songs. I don't know. I thought it might be have to do with royalty, but I don't think that works. I don't know. I'm stumped. Okay. So the names are also artists. Oh, okay. Do you want to try to get them? So Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. Yep. Henry. Who? Papa won't leave you, Henry Matisse. Oh, stupid. Okay. Georgia O'Keefe. Yes. Renee Magritte. Yep, is crying. Paul. Pablo Picasso, Paul? Paul. Paul Cezanne. No, Paul Cezanne. 
and Vincent Van Gogh, I yep. guess. 1952 Vincent Van Gogh Black Lightning. Okay, that's cool. That's a cool quiz. Oh, good, good. I hope I hope people figured that out. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Good, great songs. Good, challenging quiz. I bet somebody out there got it. You couldn't done like a Salvador song. I couldn't find a Salvador song. That's what I wanted to try. I was going to do like... Isn't there a Clash song called El Salvador or something? Maybe. I maybe. Know. I was going to do like Hello, Dolly. <laughs> that, uh, what's her name? Who's the, the old Broadway singer with the giant eyes? I can't think of her name. Anyway. All right. Well, um, fun quiz. Um, let us know if you got it. Let us know via social media. Joe, you want to talk about social media? Yeah. We, um, before we do that, actually... I made a, a mistake in the Velvet Underground show last week. Just one? It was just a, yeah. I made one mistake that I was caught <laughs> on. So we actually do a lot of research for these shows. It isn't just, hey, let's go to Wikipedia and look some stuff up. We do a lot of research, and we really want the information to be as correct as possible. But I screwed something up, and it was a total mistake. I When I mentioned uh, Doug Ewell playing in what goes on playing the song what goes on for the live 1969 album i said guitar um he played the organ and the clip i played immediately after that was was the organ but that was pointed out on twitter from dennis myers so thank you dennis um i do really appreciate that we definitely do not uh like making mistakes we don't (laughs) so i don't i don't really mind honestly but i try not to we try we try not to we want to present real information to you that has been checked but screwed up but i really appreciate him him pointing that out on twitter thank you it's, oh yeah that's, that's thank you for listening and thank you for paying attention enough to to notice that that's awesome i'm re- actually really excited about that anytime you want to correct joe please like jump in Ex- exactly it'll be like being home for thanksgiving and <laughs> so and other otherwise that's the only correction that i've been caught on for this last week and otherwise, we have a Twitter feed. It's Highway Hi-Fi Pod. Uh, just follow us there. Chat with us. We have a Facebook page. We have an email. It's Highway Hi-Fi Podcast at gmail.com. Send us an email. Anything you guys want to chat about, we, are, we would love it. And we are approaching our 50th episode, and we're going to be having a giveaway of some sort. We mentioned this on the last episode, too. We're, we're trying to figure that out, exactly what it's going to be. But we'll we'll announce more of that on the next episode, I think. Yep. It's going to be cool, whatever it is. It's going to be great. I, I hope so. I don't want to build them up. I don't want to build people up too much, though. I mean, I figure at this point, might as well go all in. It'll be um, adequate. How's that? You won't not want it? <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Perfect. (laughs) Okay. I think we set ourselves up for success there. Yeah, exactly. As always, um, please go out and support record stores or support musicians or record labels. I've been doing this thing where I'll just kind of get interested in a record label and I'll just go to their, I'll go to them and try to buy a couple, two or three records from them just to kind of help the record label. And it's been really fun. I'm, you know, trying to branch out a little bit in things I'm listening to and it makes me feel good because I'm going directly to the label and presumably they're going, paying their artist fairly. Buy some records. Uh, we, we play a lot of clips on most shows and songs and we're not trying to rip anybody off or let anybody steal, but we do want 
do always want to push how important it is that you're um, spending your hard-earned money in a way that's going to support lots of other people who are deserving and will keep making music that we all love and that we can keep talking about. Yeah, go through some dollar bins, pick out cool records, just grab one because the cover's great, or go through the jazz record section if you're if you haven't been doing that already and look at some of those covers. They're so great, the blue, all of them: Blue Note, Prestige, Atlantic, Impulse. Um, they have some really great covers. Absolutely. And um, thanks for listening. And as always, if you want to help co-host a show or if you have an idea on how to make it better or want to submit a quiz or, or whatever you want to do, like let us know. We are very open to ideas. Anyways, have a wonderful uh, evening or day whenever you're listening to this. And we'll be back next time. Alex Charger. <laughs> yeah, I can't do it fast. It makes it worse to say Charger real fast. In an article published by Retinart, <laughs> I can't even get to it now. In an article published by Retinart, Alex Charger wrote about Reed Miles. <laughs> God, I can't get through Charger. In an article published by Ret. God damn. In an article published by Retinart, Alex Charger. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say his name. In an article published by Redhart. God damn it. I screwed myself. In an article published by Redhart, Alex Charchar wrote about Reed Miles. <laughs> damn it, Joe. Had it. <laughs> I did. I heard you. No, I heard your smirk. In an article published by Redhart. <laughs> In an article published by Redhart. Alex Charchar wrote, God damn it, I can't do it. <laughs> In an article, I'm going to try it one more time. Charchar. Charchar.